presence of his enemies and his cup overflowed. And uh, that was to us an image of decisive joy. Decisive because it's the kind of joy the world can't take away, that circumstances cannot deprive us of. Last week uh, in episode two, we looked at defiant joy that overcomes the most difficult circumstances. And we gave a number of examples from the, the Bible of that joy. And today we're going to look at dynamic joy that overpowers whatever crisis that we're facing. Because the Bible teaches that we can experience godly joy in dark and difficult days. Because we never thought it would get this bad. We can't even go to church on Sunday. How do we cope with that? Well, for the Hebrews in the Old Testament, it was even worse. Because during the Babylonian invasion, their temple was demolished and all services were canceled for the next 70 years. And so as we conclude this series, we're going to see what happened after the Hebrews passed through those dark and deadly shadowlands. And we'll focus our attention on Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, look at your word. And we thank you for our church family. Thank you for looking after them, keeping them safe and healthy. We just uh, really appreciate that. We don't take that for granted. And we just pray for those in special needs that uh, you would be there for them and uh, that they would experience your presence. So, Lord, thank you now for your word and help us to understand it just the way the people did when in Nehemiah 8, the word of God was shared with the survivors. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 586 BC, the Babylonian army almost succeeded in turning Israel into an extinct species. But God protected his people, and after decades in exile, he drew them back home. And that's when Nehemiah returned to the ruins with a mission, telling the survivors in chapter 2, verse 17, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And although they faced relentless opposition and ridicule, this massive project was finished in just 52 days. Because for Nehemiah, it was all about the wall. He was kind of the trump of the Old Testament. They finished it in 52 days, which means that the nation of Israel was now back in business. They had survived yet another extinction event. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people assembled to dedicate the wall and to rededicate themselves. Because one thing was clear, this time it had to be different. They could not make the same mistakes that their ancestors had made. They had to forsake the sins that had provoked God's judgment. This was their second chance. This was a new beginning. And this time, they would not ignore God's word 
and disobey his commands as previous generations had done. And so this gathering was all about recommitment. We read in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Verse 8 says they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That's expository preaching. But just imagine listening to scripture read and explained for six hours. That can only mean one thing. This was a revival. Because in normal circumstances, we're willing to tolerate a church service for an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half. But then we want to get on with the rest of our lives. But in the two revivals I've experienced, the time and space continuum gets stretched towards infinity and beyond because time is not an issue in revival. The one that we experienced here in Calgary in the early 70s quickly got out of control. We had church services every night of the week. They lasted two hours, three, four, five hours. Three of us almost got arrested for coming out of Temple Baptist Church at 2 a.m. in the morning. Is there a problem, officer? By the way, do you know that Jesus loves you? And remember that in those days, there was no coffee maker in the lobby. These were non-caffeinated services. But we had no problem with attention spans. Time was irrelevant. So before you pray for a revival, you better count the cost. Because you won't have a lot of time to binge watch Netflix. And you'll forget all about Instagram and Twitter. When a revival happens, it's no longer business as usual. It gets out of control because the Holy Spirit takes control. And when that happens, people hunger and thirst to hear God's word. They don't just nibble on it. And they come under conviction, deep conviction, until the tears start flowing. We read in verse 9, For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, many of them had not heard God's word in their entire lives. They knew the stories of, about Moses and David and Elijah. But it didn't seem to matter anymore. The temple was destroyed. It was turned into Anchor Wat. And so that's it. From now on, we have to fend for ourselves. We have to live by our basic instincts. It's survival of the fittest. It's time to stockpile toilet paper. But when Nehemiah shows up, he says, Listen, people, God sent me because he wants us to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. What? God? Does that mean he hasn't given up on us? It blew their mind. No wonder they listened to his word with undivided attention. No wonder they wept when they realized how sinful and selfish they'd become. You see, true repentance is more than a smile and a handshake. Please forgive me. Repentance needs to go as deep 
as our sinfulness right down to the roots. And when you really repent, it's painful. You're overwhelmed with anguish. There's fear and trembling and weeping. Isaiah cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined. You see, the thing is that sin is our number one problem. It's far worse than coronavirus. The media has focused their undivided attention on this pandemic because it's so contagious and there's so many casualties. It's the appropriate response to this life-threatening crisis. But there's a far worse danger than coronavirus, and that is sin. Because sin has far more serious consequences. It can result in an eternal quarantine in hell. And it's not sporadic. 100% of all humans have tested positive. But the good news is that there's a cure. Jesus Christ is the remedy. He alone has the authority to forgive our sins. Through his death and resurrection, we are set free from guilt. How come the media isn't talking about that? I guess they haven't come under conviction. It says, For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And then Nehemiah said, You are going to now need to quarantine for 14 days. Not exactly. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Wow. It's important to repent so that we can move on directly and immediately to rejoicing. Because sin is not the main order of business. Sin is like garbage. The only sensible thing to do with garbage is to throw it away. We don't spend time contemplating our garbage. We don't meditate on it day and night. That's why garbage day is the second most important day of the week. Trash is something you get rid of as soon as possible. You don't stockpile garbage. You don't sorted into different colored bins. You get rid of it, all of it. The ladies know this. So guys, as long as you take out the trash, your wife will never divorce you. As someone said, no husband has ever been shot while doing the dishes or taking out garbage. It's the only healthy thing to do. Get rid of it as soon as possible. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it goes into the black bin. And we don't have to wait two weeks for pickup. It's immediate. Go and sin no more. That's the workflow of healthy believers. God is eager to forgive us because then he can forget about our sin. Isaiah 64 verse 9 says, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Now God could do that. He could use our failure as, a, as leverage to force us to behave. You want me to forgive you? Why should I? You're a repeat offender. You've got priors. Look at your rap sheet. 
Well, God is not like that. God loves us. And 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's why in Isaiah 43, verse 25, it says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God does this for his own sake because he doesn't want to remember the sins that you've committed once they've been forgiven and cleansed. You know, I don't remember what I put into the garbage last year or last month or even last week. Why would, what good would that do? We have to move on. You leave the garbage behind and move on to the things that are truly important. And in the spiritual realm, we move on to the main purpose of our existence, which is enjoying God. Because the bumper sticker on the back of his truck says, I'd rather be fishing. Or how about, let's go golfing. Let's go shopping. Let's visit the zoo. How would you like to go for a hike in the mountains? The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to love God, glorify God, and enjoy him forever. That's what it's all about. So Nehemiah said, Go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so these exiles and survivors who had wandered through the valley of the shadow of death now had a table prepared for them in the presence of their enemies. And they were told, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Deep conviction led directly to celebration. In verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So the question is, are we there yet? How do you know when you've reached your destination? Well, you haven't really arrived until you've experienced the kind of joy that the world can't take away because the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is dynamic joy. The Greek word is dunamis. It's power. And we need power. You've noticed that life just keeps draining our energy and we get exhausted so much so that we're running on fumes where's the nearest starbucks how do we keep going life in a fallen world creates a perpetual energy crisis which brings me to a true confession i don't know what it is about me but i'm definitely not the life of the party spoiler alert I seem to have a way of spoiling the fun in every city I moved to. When we arrived in Edmonton in 1989, their motto was City of Champions. Those were great years with Wayne Gretzky and Warren Moon, when Edmonton won numerous Stanley Cups, Grey Cups, and that happened perpetually. Just every other year they were winning something, until I showed up. After that, not so much. In fact, 
They won one NHL trophy in 25 years. And so they had to change their motto. It's now called Gateway to the North. So was this a coincidence or was it a pattern? Well, we moved back to Calgary in 2014 where the motto is, be part of the energy. Energy? Can you feel the momentum? Not exactly. It used to be here, but as gas prices plummet, as people can't find jobs, that energy seems to have lessened considerably. And now with this pandemic, and of course the whole world is struggling. Life just has a way of draining our energy. Every setback, every disappointment, every defeat weakens us. Every fear intimidates us. You know, as Christians, we have experienced a number of strategic defeats in the culture wars. And we're in retreat. And as that happens, fatigue sets in. We get weary in well-doing. Are you getting tired of fighting? Maybe that's why more and more churches have kind of given up and compromised. They've surrendered the integrity of the Bible and the uniqueness of the gospel which proclaims salvation through Christ alone. The evangelical church in Canada is somewhat demoralized. Somehow we need to recover our zeal, to rediscover our confidence in the Lord and our boldness so that we can continue to run the race and fight the good fight and keep the faith. But how do we do that? Well, this verse may help answer that question. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So those who listened to the word of God, those who came under conviction and began to grieve, needed something to restore their energy. When we focus too much on our personal problems, our failings, our sins, it weakens us, we get exhausted, we get overwhelmed and lose hope. That's why conviction has to be short-term. It has to move directly to celebration because it's in dynamic joy that we recover our strength. The joy of the Lord is an unquenchable source of dynamic power. And you know this from personal experience because when you're happy, when you're really happy, you feel like you're 20 years younger, 30 pounds lighter, three inches taller, and even if you've experienced a recession, you feel like you've got a full head of naturally curly hair. To use an antiquated expression, when you're really happy, you feel like you could lick your weight in wildcats. You're ready for any challenge. When you're happy, there's all this adrenaline. You've got surplus energy. Look out, world, here I come. Well, we're not just interested in being happy. We want a lot more than that. We want to experience the dynamic joy of the Lord. Because happiness is like the weather on a partly cloudy day. Every time the sun goes behind a dark cloud, it sends shivers through us. Happiness fluctuates like the weather. But joy is more like climate. It's a different climate zone. When spring finally takes hold... It makes you want to just go out and get involved with life. We feel energized. And when you're rejoicing, you become an unstoppable force. 
Here's what David writes in Psalm 18, verse 29. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. One uh, translation says, I can leap over a wall. Which reminds us that joy is really our superpower. Joy gives us buoyancy. It makes us aerodynamic. Joy oxygenates and hydrates. Why, you might even get 30% off on car insurance. And the good news is that you can access the joy of the Lord even in dark and difficult days. Because in the shadowlands, there are shortcuts that take you in the direction of joy. And as I've been exploring this area for the past four decades, I've found about a half dozen shortcuts that can take us in the direction of dynamic joy. The first one we've already discussed, repentance. Is there any greater joy than knowing you've been forgiven? Knowing that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Because guilt drains our energy, but the joy of forgiveness replenishes our strength. The second shortcut is trust. Last week we talked about Psalm 13, where David unexpectedly interrupts his problems with praise. In the presence of his enemies, David announces in Psalm 13, verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation. Notice the connection there between trust and rejoicing. Trust is a shortcut that leads to joy. The third one is humility. Because when you're asserting yourself, when you're promoting yourself, that gets exhausting. But when you humble yourself, you qualify for a special benefit a valuable blessing. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's what God wants to do. He doesn't want to keep you down. He wants to lift you up. And God lifting you up, that's, that's better than winning the lottery. That's better than being the chief beneficiary in Bill Gates' will. The Bible says he is the lifter of our heads. The fourth shortcut is similar. It's self-denial. For many people, life is all about finding yourselves. People get so obsessed with that, they'll, they'll even endure gender reassignment surgery. But finding yourself is ultimately futile. It's a dead end. It can be frustrating and, and exhausting. The true purpose of life is not to find yourself, but to deny yourself. Jesus said in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, when we follow Jesus, we can expect two things. First of all, great sacrifice. That's the cross. But that sacrifice leads to great joy, as Hebrews 12, 2 points out, where it talks about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Self-denial will take us through great sacrifice toward even greater joy. 
The fifth shortcut is gratitude. As Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was facing the worst circumstances of his life. He was in a dungeon on death row. But he wasn't depressed. He was rejoicing. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. How is that possible? Rejoice in the Lord always? Well, I think the key is in verse 6 where Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. With thanksgiving. Because gratitude is a powerful game changer. When you're struggling in the undertow of discouragement and depression, you need to say, whatever. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When you're emotionally grounded, those are the thermals, the powerful updrafts that lift you heavenward. Because as Isaiah 40 explains, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, and they will soar on wings like eagles. Well, I promised you six, and the sixth one is the scriptures. We saw this already in Nehemiah 8, verse 12. It says, The people went to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. God's word is so encouraging because his promises are so invigorating. David found that out. He writes in Psalm 19, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. The longest chapter in the Bible contains David's doctoral thesis on the overpowering dynamic joy of God's word. Psalm 119, verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Verse 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers. I have more understanding than the elders. Verse 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Have you experienced that? Have you seen how God's promises and God's word give you great joy? Can you corroborate David's testimony? Well, that's six, but let me give you one more. Number seven is worship. Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. It was Malachi who pointed out the connection between reverence and rejoicing. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, he says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. That's a 
very, very powerful image of joy. I really miss our Sunday morning worship times because no matter what my frame of mind is, sometimes I, I come into his courts downcast. Sometimes I'm filled with self-pity or I'm frustrated or I'm struggling with lack of sleep. But worship always changes the trajectory of my mood. As Colossians chapter 3 says, verses 1 and 2, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That's what worship does. And thank God that we have uh, the internet where we can see worship services and, and hear worship songs that can keep us focused on things above. Well, that's seven, but I have another number seven because the Holy Spirit, what about the Holy Spirit? We always overlook the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a source of joy. In fact, joy is the second most compelling evidence of the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets focused on spiritual gifts, tongues, healing, prophecy, or creating the casserole that's the first to be finished at the potluck supper. That has to be a spiritual gift. Everybody's focused on spiritual gifts, but I'm much more interested and impressed with spiritual fruit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? It's love and then joy. Joy is a vital sign of spiritual health. In fact, there's only one thing more important, and that's love. So joy is not an optional extra in the life of faith. We do not have to just endure the Christian life. We can enjoy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us so many pathways that lead to joy. And uh, we just want to spend more time with you, walking up those trails and experiencing a dynamic joy that the world cannot take away. Lord, thank you that all these paths lead towards Jesus, who is truly the reason for the joy that we have. We pray this now in his name, giving you thanks. Amen.